Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we begin a series of conversations with authors featured on our Utah Public Radio book list. Julia Corbett's new book, Seven Summers, A Naturalist, Homesteads in the Modern West, is a story of a naturalist turned professor who flees city life each summer with her pets and power tools to pursue her lifelong dream, building a cabin in the Wyoming woods. The task involves a gradual and sometimes painful acquisition of flexibility and humility. And for her, homesteading is not about wresting a living from the land, but respecting and immersing herself in it. The process changes her in unexpected ways, just as it did for women homesteaders more than a century ago. Julia Corbett is a professor in the Department of Communication at University of Utah, and she is author, among several other books, of one of the first texts in environmental communication, which is called Communicating Nature, How We Understand and Communicate Environmental Messages. Prior to receiving her master's and a Ph.D. at the University of Minnesota, she was a reporter, park ranger, naturalist, natural resources information officer, and a press secretary. And uh, Julia Corbett, welcome to Access Utah. Good morning. Thank you very much. We appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to be with us. Uh, I think uh, one of the common themes running through all the things that you've done is naturalist. Yes. Um, and you mentioned in your book that it, it goes back, I think, to your growing up in the Iowa woods. It does. It does. I attribute that a lot. Um, I think even though I'm living in a big city now, um, that for many people, those early memories uh, in nature have a profound effect and shape uh, the kind of habitat and landscape that you're familiar in. And uh, the freedom we had in those woods to wander and explore and just be back by dinner time uh, was really, really lovely. You mentioned a picture of yourself about seven years old holding a bouquet of uh, like white flowers, uh, proof that, uh, and the expression on your face, you mentioned, right. proof, proof that this, and your mother calls you her little, uh, her little nature, nature lover. Yeah. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so this began very early. Um, yes, at least my comfort in the woods um, very much did so, and it was my playground. Um, it was in a small town in <clears throat> Iowa, and uh, we didn't have sidewalks, and uh, our playgrounds were the woods. That's where we uh, hung out, built forts, played in the, the creek. Um, it was lovely. You talk about uh, that sometimes we have dreams. We can't really communicate them fully to others. But when you found this parcel, 10-acre parcel, we'll get into this a little later as well, in Wyoming, that you mentioned to your realtor, this, this, is, this is my dream. This is yep. what I pictured. Yep. And I don't remember this, but my father told me later that he remembers when I was a very young girl, I want to say five or six, um, that I told him that someday I wanted to have an, a cabin in the woods, and that's where I would write. Um, and I do think that <clears throat> by the time circumstances in my life brought me to finding this land and building this cabin, that that had just been kind of uh, a little seed, not fully germinated, uh, at the time, but I do really think that many of the dreams uh, that we hold, perhaps in abeyance for much of our lives, are very important, um, shall we say, directional tools <laughs> if we uh, listen to them. Now, you mentioned that you have friends who are desert rats. They're never more at home than when they're out in the desert. Others, and you were a park ranger at uh, Olympic National Park, I think, mm -hmm. right? Are ocean people, but that's not you, but, but you, you're at home in the mountains. I am. I am. Um, I don't like the heat. I think that's part of what um, makes me not as comfortable in the desert. Um, but there's just not enough chlorophyll, I guess, in the mm -hmm. desert. And yep. I really like the, mm. uh, the coolness of mountains, um, the smell, um, the birds, the creatures. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just the whole, the whole picture. Um, I just feel the most comfortable in the mountains. And there's a whole strain, uh, native versus non-native. You mentioned at a hearing in, in Idaho, when, when you, I can't remember what job you had then, a, uh, a, a state senator asked you how long have you lived in Idaho. Right. And you said four years, and that, uh, that wasn't enough for him. He right. <laughs> <laughs> snorted, rolled his eyes. He's native, you're not. Right, right. And it comes out in, in several chapters in the book, um, I'm a Westerner through and through. I've lived most of my adult life in the West, um, and it's more kind of the 100th meridian West, um, and it's not one particular place. 
But I think there is enough sameness in the West, um, especially for Westerners, that they uh, can feel a bit of that Western pride, um, even in, in differing types of state. Um, my grandparents um, and great-grandparents uh, were all from eastern Washington, um, so I remember as a child piling in the station wagon, and we always went west for our, our vacation. So I feel very, very rooted here. And so having the, you know, a lot of us listening to the program will have lived in the West all of our lives. Uh, you've, you've lived several places. Grew up in Iowa. What is it about the, the West? What, do, what makes you feel at home, home in the West? How do you explain that to friends who are from other places? <laughs> I need to work on that. I, it, it is hard to explain. I don't know if you've ever tried to explain it. It's a, uh, <clears throat> there's something about the light, um, the dryness in the air and the open um, vistas and distances that that uh, gives it. Um, it is also the, the sparseness of population um, the abundance of um, public lands. Um, there's also, I think, in the West, um, at least for me, um, for many people, there's a, a strong belief in kind of do-it-yourself-ness and independence, and that appeals to me as well. Um, and what I've experienced here in Wyoming, which is lovely, um, when you live in a small rural place, um, community and neighbors have a very different meaning. And I assume that might be true in, in other parts of the um, country, but for me, I very much felt that in the West, that there's a different sense of um, being there for one another when <clears throat> you're not surrounded by humanity. Mm -hmm. And Wyoming, of course, the most sparsely populated state. Yep. <laughs> 1.2 people per square mile, is it? I, I... It's uh, fewer people than cows, I know that. Yes. And, and <laughs> probably antelope as well, but yeah, very sparsely populated. And so, but, but that would promote sense of unity. When you find another person, I guess you, it, it's it's more rare you latch onto it. Right, right. Uh, so tell us a little bit about about this place. We'll get into how you got got out there. You 30 miles from your post office, 50 miles from the store. Um, and actually, I, I kid people, I don't even measure it in miles. Um, I measure it in minutes. So it is 30 minutes from the um, post office, and the, um, they give you a post office box if they don't deliver to your place um, at the closest uh, location. So Bondurant is the closest place for my post office, but there's no shopping there. So 45 minutes in the other direction is Pinedale. Mm. So I'm pretty much in the middle of... Um, not populated areas. <laughs> which is which is what you wanted, right? Yes, yes. Uh, and you don't tell people exactly where this is? I don't. Um, and there is a name of the little settlement here um, that was once a gigantic kind of ranch. And I was asked at a reading in Pinedale why I didn't do that. And it was very intentional, kind of like if you have a favorite fishing hole or a hiking trail, um, telling people is not a good thing. Um, I also changed all the names of my Wyoming neighbors um, just because I figured they didn't ask to be in this book. Mm -hmm. So, But you know it's between Pinedale and Bondurant. <laughs> oh, okay. But <laughs> I suppose if someone wanted to take a, they an extended field trip, they could maybe right. go out and try to find your place. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think... You know, especially people in the West can can understand your your desire to to keep this a little bit secret. Right, right. Um, I'm always interested talking to people who are especially affected by nature, as as you are, and I think you know most of us are if we if we really think about it and admit it. There seems to be a spiritual component to this, and you even you even talk about on Sundays you go out uh, hiking up in the. In the, in the Wasatch Hills. Mm -hmm. That's your church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, of course, I'm lucky enough up here summers in the cabin that it's it can be church every single day. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that, and there's even, goodness gracious, research now to um, back this up, that uh, the, whatever you want to call it, nature, the beyond human world, the natural world, has... Uh, demonstrated powerful healing and very restorative effects. So even if you don't want to bring the spiritual slash religious into it, it's I think our connection with nature is hardwired enough in us 
um, that if we do have the chance to step away from uh, just our own species and get perspective on it, um, I think many people understand uh, what that um, kind of immersing yourself in nature is all about. Um, I think for me, it provides incredible uh, grounding um, kind of perspective on my own life um, to step out of everything human for a while and to um, uh, kind of set the human tendencies aside and adjust to the pace of something different from your everyday life. I, I think in many ways that's why so many people that I've talked to um, can relate to my experience whether they do it or not because the idea of a cabin in the woods, you know, that kind of, of dream resonates with people. And I think culturally um, it's in a lot of our uh, literature, if not our experience, of being able to do that. So I'm lucky that I get to do it all summer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I wonder, do you think this is this need to connect to nature, do you think it's universal? I, you know, I, I could think of some people who are maybe raised in a very urban space. I do. I, I really do. Um, uh, without getting into some of the theories, and there's theories now that su support this and experiments and whatnot, but there's a very famous study, and this was quite a while ago, of having um, people in a hospital and whether they had a room with a view of a tree and a room with a view of a building or parking lot, those who could sit there and gaze at the tree healed faster. Hmm. And those types of studies about the, the power, the restorativeness, healing quality of nature um, are very much um, supporting that. Uh, you have a, a new book you're working on. I promise we'll, we'll talk about Seven Summers, but uh, this is interesting right here. A New Day for the Moon. And, and apparently you're you're investigating um, the, the ways in which modern life we sort of uh, control nature, we even shield ourselves mm -hmm. from nature, and you're, you're trying to get away from that. Yeah. Um, a regular day for the moon, and then the subtitles, Culture and Everyday Nature. Um, and I find this a lot of my students, too, that um, when we think of nature, we think of the Wasatch Mountains or uh, the Wind River Range. We don't think of it as existing in our everyday lives. And... To me, it all starts there. I mean, if you think of the nature that's in your studio right now, uh, air, water, wood, um, all sorts of natural materials, um, we're very much surrounded by it, but it's disguised. It's kind of distance from us. Um, and I think when we forget those everyday and continuous connections that we have and how we depend on the natural world, um, that disconnects us in a way from its presence in our lives everywhere, not just in the mountains, but all around us every day. And so how do we mend that connection then? Um, I guess the first step is being aware of it, um, that when you turn on the light switch or um, get a glass of water from the tap, um, that that's a very long um, um, journey, I guess, that those resources took um, to get to you, and it behooves us to consider how they were obtained and how we're using them. Mm. I read this thing a couple weeks ago that was fascinating, that um, these researchers did, um, <clears throat> there was a pair of tennis shoes that was made from, in China, some, you know, fancy athletic shoe, and the shoe had something like 121 different um, natural components that it went into making it. I mean, to me, that's mind-boggling, uh, the way that we're using um, nature every day, but it's kind of disguised. And therefore, we don't think about it. Right, right. Yeah. We're talking with Julia Corbett. Uh, she is a professor in the Communication Department at the University of Utah. Uh, her academic studies uh, have to do with uh, how we uh, communicate about uh, the environment. Her new book is a memoir. Uh, Seven Summers, a naturalist, homesteads in the modern West. A story of how she uh, fulfilled her dream of uh, finding this 10-acre uh, parcel of land uh, up in the uh, mountain country of Wyoming and how she built a cabin there, some uh, adventures there. And, and she talks in the book also about the 
early homesteaders, and especially women homesteaders, we'll get into talking about how she compares and contrasts their experiences with hers. Uh, as we go along talking about Seven Summers, we'll have more following a break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now offering a ham and cheese demi-baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page, or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. We're talking with Julia Corbett on Access Utah today. This is the first in a series of conversations we're going to be having with authors featured on our Utah Public Radio book list. We asked for your recommendations and uh, recommendations from booksellers and compiled uh, an impressive book list. You can find that on our website, upr.org. Uh, Julia Corbett's book was recommended by uh, Catherine Weller from Weller Bookworks. Uh, she uh, praised the writing and uh, told us it was a, a very good story, which is uh, absolutely true. It's, uh, it's a good read, as they say. Julia Corbett is uh, a professor at the University of Utah. And uh, Summers, she takes advantage of, the, uh, of course, the nine-month uh, contract for professors and uh, goes up to the Wyoming uh, mountains where she bought 10 acres of land and over seven summers built a cabin there. And uh, uh, Seven Summers, of course, is the story of how she built the cabin, the adventures there, what she learned. And there's, uh, Julie Carpet, there's, there's a strain of uh, history here. You, uh, you're very interested in women homesteaders, the original mm-hmm. period. Yeah. I, I was very interested in learning, learning about that. What, what got you interested in, in them? Um, <clears throat> I think it was a neighbor here who had been um, doing some research on women in the West. And I was at the Pinedale Library <clears throat> one day, and just started looking for some books on it and read one, had to read another. Um, I was flabbergasted when I learned that 12% of all the homestead applications um, were filed by single women because the law stated that uh, you just had to be a head of a household, and so single women applied for that. And I was struck by how um, some of the same things that they were looking for and seeking, whether it was um, sufficiency or space, freedom, independence, and so on, um, were very similar. Now, of course, they, many of them had never been West and only knew the West of writing and photograph and so on. Um, But by reading about their experiences, I just thought, you know, if they can figure out how to do this and how to get help uh, building something, um, and finding their way in the West, then <clears throat> maybe there was room for a, a more modern um, woman to do it likewise. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're inspirations for you. Yeah. I wonder if you could uh, read a passage uh, about this. It's, it's page 11. Page 11. And uh, just starting with the f- first full paragraph there to the end of the page, uh, starting it was obvious to me what attracted single women. It okay. talks about some specific... Uh, home, so, and you, and you, you talk about some specific uh, women uh, throughout throughout the book, uh, your neighbors and right. and these these homesteaders from the early period. Right. Okay. So just that first full paragraph, uh, and then continuing to the end of the uh, page. Okay. Yeah. It was obvious to me what attracted single women to head west and homestead. In the 1860s, women wore corsets and long skirts, rode side saddle, if at all, and had few choices but beyond wife and mother. Fathers and sometimes brothers dictated whom a woman should marry. Homesteading offered single women freedom and economic security on land of their very own, a chance to choose something of their own making and to create their own experiences. That was indeed a new and heady notion. May Holliday wrote that she felt this in the air as soon as she crossed the Rockies. My former ideas of the importance of class distinction and the observance of social conventions seemed to fall from me like a heavy cloak, which had long been a burden, and I was free, free to live my own life and my own way. Alice Day Pratt, who homesteaded in Oregon in 1910, wrote that when she boarded the train to head west, she had no regret of what she was leaving behind, the competition and life at high pressure, and she anticipated instead calm, freedom, limitless spaces, hope, and opportunity. The cloak of social conventions is less heavy now, but a single woman building a cabin in the woods is still a highly unusual occurrence. Sure, Dad would visit each summer for a week, but I was embarking on this venture alone, without husband or partner. 
the land title was in my name. I weathered life in that meadow by myself, and my future there sat on my shoulders. So when you were out uh, building this cabin, uh, you know, with help, but you were definitely spearheading it in many, many stretches alone, did, did you have some of these women in mind? Um, probably not individually, because what I read about them was kind of snippets here and there, and they didn't really fully, you know, actualize individual people, but collectively very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also uh, thank my lucky stars more than once um, that I didn't, that um, modern dwellings and construction and so on had regressed enough that I didn't have to, uh, you know, hand peel my logs and chink them and deal with a constant flow of rodents in the house. Mm, Although yeah. I did in my motorhome, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did in your motorhome. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that, the, and I hadn't realized this, the Homestead Act purposely, and, and you write controversially at the time, mm-hmm. uh, was gender neutral. Right. In, in other words, it, it only mentioned a person. If, if a person takes so many acres and, you know, homesteads on it, then, then they can have it. I guess the exception is if you get married within a certain period of time, the, the title would revert to your new husband. But, right. So that did attract, and that was purposeful, right, because uh, Congress wanted women in the West. Yes, and they thought, um, and women realized, too, that getting your own piece of land and whether you just uh, proved up on it and sold it or you stayed on it, um, that it really was a great way for many women to get some economic security that they wouldn't have otherwise. And the lawmakers were also wanting women West um, kind of as a civilizing influence, um, thinking that they would help with kind of the community structure in many of these small towns. So when you embarked on your adventure, uh, definitely an important part of this was power tools. <laughs> and as I was reading this, I was thinking, uh, well, that, that isn't, you know, if, if what you were going for was an authentic sort of an experience, um, right. you know, maybe that violates that. Of course, it makes it a lot easier. Not to say easy, but a lot easier. Yeah, but I, I think those women homesteaders would have embraced power tools as much as I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and there's something about power tools. You, you, you talk about the words like thrill and danger. Yep, yep. If you're holding, yep. if you're holding a chainsaw, there's danger there. Yep, yep. Um, and th- those came slowly. Um, it wasn't like I bought po- power tools immediately and came up. I... The whole, and hence seven summers, it was a slow process, and it was me even getting comfortable with the idea that, oh, my gosh, I have land. What do I do next? I was very naive, but I kept thinking it was that strong dream that kept me going and uh, helped me just kind of leap in whether I knew anything about it or not. And it was after watching and learning from um, the different uh, men and a woman or two, who helped me on my cabin and watching them with the tools and then also remembering my brothers um, and their work with tools that I very slowly got confidence, um, started with the chainsaw that my dad and I used, um, and then when it came to the finished work for the cabin, um, the power nailer, the chop saw, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the the nail gun, if you've never right. used a nail gun, that uh, your your description of that was, was very apt. <laughs> Uh, and there's a lot of power there and danger there. There is, yep. Yep. <laughs> that compressor kicks on and, and it can it can go through, you know, yep. several pieces of wood. There's definite gender stereotyping here, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've been asked this question in readings before. Um, for some people, um, the chauvinism does come out and they kind of leap to assumptions that I couldn't possibly be doing this um, by myself. Um, But then there are other people that I've met who very much have embraced it and good for you. Um, You know, how could I help? Um, And that sense of community, I guess, again. Mm -hmm. So it's varied. It hasn't been 100% um, one way or the other. You talk about how um, you first learned to use some of these power tools, chainsaw, for example, mm-hmm. with your ex-husband, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, but at that point, early on, you you sort of accepted the, or maybe fell passively into some some you know ger- gender roles. He mainly used the chainsaw. You you stacked the wood, that kind no. of thing. 
I think many people of my um, age um, are our parents had very gendered um, relationships. Um, uh, my mother raised us and kept the household together. And so I think many of the early baby boomers um, who were coming of age um, when women's issues in the 60s and 70s were taking off, um, that it wasn't automatic then. And I must say for even women today, it's not automatic um, that oh, let's figure out how these tasks should be divided, gender or not. It's just, it's a cultural pattern that I think, no matter the age, can be very easy to fall into. Um, but I think what's important, at least to me, um, and for many of the young women that I, I teach and work with, is that you consider not just what culture expects of you, but what you want to do. And what appeals to you? What sounds fun? What um, What are your skills? What are you good at? Um, and try and let those guide you as much as any cultural constraints. I was interested to read that to, when when you went off to college, mm-hmm. um, your dad was very concerned that you that you'd learn two things, right? To you, how to put oil in the car and and in the lawnmower. Yep. Yep. Um, and when you would report back, their questions would be about your classes and not so much about your, your love life. That's yep. a message to you. Yep. I, I did get the messages from both parents that um, it was a good thing to be independent, and it was a good thing to know how to do things, um, to fix things, to uh, definitely to figure things out. And the figuring out helped me immensely at various stages in the cabin when I would have a a construction quandary and not know what to do. Um, I described one instance of when I was living in Dory, this ancient motorhome that I lived in before I built the cabin, the water pump went out. And you're up here in the middle of nowhere, what on earth do you do? And I kind of had my dad's voice in the back of my head, you know, just figure it out. Just sit there, um, evaluate it, figure out how it works. And it took me a few days of going back and forth and kind of staring at it, but I figured it out. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, self-sufficiency, whether it's, um, and again, kind of back to my students, um, it's hard not to do when you're a professor. Um, So many of them don't know how to cook. Uh, They don't know how to sew on a button. And, you know, those are all the things that were very, very important um, of my generation and my parents of learning how to do things for yourself. I wonder if I could have you read another uh, page. This is, I believe it's page 134. Okay. Kind of straining with my eyes. It's a very small page number. Okay. Uh, it's in it's in the chapter called The Day Doe. And uh, it's it's a very interesting moving passage. Of, uh, your mother, you mentioned, was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, she had uh, earlier um, designed clothing, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was she was content to stay home and and, uh, and proud of it, and uh, then you you talk about how you found an article where she had expressed some feelings. You you found this after she died, right? So, so you're, starting you, with the years after years she, after she died, going down okay. to the bottom of the page. Years after she died, I found a feature article on Mom and her weaving printed in the little local newspaper. She told the reporter, "With the world now, there are things that make you feel that being a person at home is just a really dumb." and lazy thing to do. I find that distressing. A beautifully run home with an interesting person is wonderful, instead of two tired, desperate people trying to get ahead. I don't consider myself submissive, but making someone happy, making a nice place to live, it's a nice thing to do. Mom indeed worked to make her husband and children happy, which involved incredible self-sacrifice and serving others at the expense of herself. That wasn't something I could see myself doing, though it's exactly what I fell into with my ex. The statistics show that women don't benefit from marriage the way men do. Married men live longer, are richer, excel at their careers, and are happier than single men. But married women do not live longer than single ones, and they earn less, are significantly less healthy, and are more likely to suffer from depression. Yet marriage remains the normative destiny for a young woman in Utah. Self-sufficiency is sadly not a quality found in many of my female students. A great many can't cook. I once asked a large auditorium of students how many knew how to check the oil level in their cars. Only a few hands went up, all male. 
A professor friend was coordinating a field trip of her nature writing class to a city park, and one female confessed that she needed a ride because, though she had a car, knew how to drive, and knew where the park was, she was too afraid of getting lost. Hmm. And that, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's distressing. You, yes. <laughs> you, 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 you describe uh, maybe a certain percentage of your female students would fit into that category. Yes, yes. I, I was curious about your, your mother. That was an intriguing quote, that I, probably intriguing for you as well when you when you found that. And I wonder, did that have you reassessing your mother's contentment or not with her role or, or, or not? No, it, mo- it mostly made me sad um, how she was questioning her role. Um, I remember her coming to me a time or two um, probably in the early 70s, uh, you know, height of the women's movement, and asking me, you know, should I get a job? Um, uh, I think she worried about contributing economically to the household. Um, And it was just kind of the cultural context of that period that was having her question what she had grown up um, doing and was very happy with. Mm. Um, Yeah. It was more her questioning. Hmm. And and so what is your advice to, obviously, you, you, you would like your female students to be more self-sufficient. I get, imagine that's what you tell them. And I'm guessing there are some conversations started when they learned that you build a cabin almost by yourself in the woods. Um, you know, it's not even just the female students, though. It's the, it's the male ones, too. Um, they don't know how to cook either. Um or, you know, change the oil or sew on a button. And those are things that both my brothers and I learned growing up. Um, and so I, I think um, those kind of life skills um, are, are very important for um, both men and women to learn. Mm. Um, I, I suppose since the book just came out, I haven't had that many inter- interactions with students about this, but... Um, one uh, thing I am doing a couple um, places on campus and even privately is I've been teaching some young 20-somethings to cook um, because the learning curve is steep for them, and I totally understand that. And it's been very fun and rewarding, but I don't think you can uh, live healthily um, or well without being able to cook. Hmm. Yeah, I was just going to mention that, not only self-sufficiency, but, but health yeah. as well. Uh, I want to get into talking about uh, the, some of the lessons that you learned. Uh, I, I think you know one thing that's inspirational about the book is is this idea of pursuing your dream. Mm-hmm. And you write that that you did have the dream, and uh, when it sort of crystallized, you just made the decision, uh, maybe not sitting down and doing pros and cons, but just going forward. Um, and the reaction that that you got from your father probably would have been typical of a lot of people. Yeah. That that he he said, really, this is what you're going to do. Yep. And, I, I, yeah, I think I mentioned that before. I think if someone has a strong dream, um, that is one of the more powerful inner intuitive things that deserves being listened to. And I think eventually my dad got that and understood, and because he's the one who remembered that I'd said it when I was a very young girl, that, okay, um, she doesn't know how this is going to work, um, she doesn't know where the money's coming from, um, but at a certain point, I think to follow your dreams, you have to be willing to risk and to kind of jump off the diving board um, and figure it out. It doesn't mean you're rash about it, but that you are willing to take risks and kind of head into the unknown and not be paralyzed by it. Mm-hmm. And I could have easily have been paralyzed. There are so many decisions. Um, big and small, that are involved in something like this. Um, but you can't let them paralyze you. You have to kind of keep moving. And, and to be clear, you know, to remind our listeners, you went into this never having done construction, right? You didn't know how to build nope. a cabin. Nope. Uh, hardly knew how to operate a chainsaw. Right. And uh, the list goes on and on. Right. So I, I don't know. I would you advise others from what you've learned from this? <laughs> if I wanted to go build a cabin, you know, starting next summer, would you advise me to go forward? Um, if that was your dream. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I would kind of equate um, this particular dream of mine 
to other dreams that people have. If uh, someone says, I want to become um, a successful musician and they've never played a note in their life, if that's a really strong dream, um, I think it deserves being tried. Or even if getting married or embarking on any new relationship like that is a big leap of faith. You don't know what's going to happen. But if it's a strong enough um, belief that you have, I think you deserve um, to uh, let yourself uh, leap. We're talking with Julia Corbett. Her new book is Seven Summers, A Naturalist Homesteads in the Modern West. It's the story of uh, uh, Julia Corbett, naturalist turned professor who flees city life each summer with her pets and power tools to pursue her lifelong dream, building a cabin in the Wyoming woods. And this, this she did over seven summers with some help, but a lot on her own. Julie Corbett is a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Utah. Her previous books includes uh, one of the first texts in environmental communication, Communicating Nature, How We Understand and Communicate Environmental Messages. And uh, before she uh, earned her Ph.D. and be, began life as a professor, she was a reporter, park ranger, naturalist, natural resources information officer, and press secretary. We're going to get into some of the lessons learned and uh, other topics when we come back following a break. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Julia Corbett. We're talking about her new book, Seven Summers, A Naturalist Homesteads in the Modern West. It's a story of a naturalist turned professor who flees city life each summer with her pets and power tools to pursue her lifelong dream, building a cabin in the Wyoming woods. And this uh, she accomplished over those seven summers. It uh, sounds like a beautiful 10-acre uh, spot, um, somewhat near Pinedale, is it, Wyoming? Right. Um, and uh, she wanted to build a cabin out there, so she embarked on this adventure not knowing how to build a cabin. Uh, of course, you got some help from your brothers who, who knew a bit about construction. Mm-hmm. And your father. Yes. Uh, I want to maybe talk a little bit about lessons learned. I'm sure in a, a project like this, uh, you go in idealistic, you come out uh, somewhat a little more realistic, there are lessons learned. Yes. <laughs> some of them, now that I can look back, um, humorous. Um, and not as painful as they were in the moment. Um, One thing that I, as a result of having uh, done this, well, many things, but here's one um, that I appreciate more so is um, physical labor. Um, I think for the majority of of Westerners, it's something like four-fifths of us live in cities, we're not used to working with our bodies and working with our bodies to produce things, um, accomplish things, etc. And I really love the combination of not just the physical labor um, that I did on the cabin, but the mental labor that I do when I'm up here in the summer and writing and things like that. Um, I find them a perfect complement, and it made me wish that more jobs um, had a mix of those two because I think you learn different things and they complement um, each other. I would often find when I was laboring doing something that my mind was still going and figuring things out, perhaps on something written. Um, But it really gave me a a newfound appreciation for physical labor and what it produces. And this is hard physical labor. Yes. (laughs) Dawn to dusk. Uh, um, I wonder... the contrast is probably a good thing. In fact, you write a bit about that in the, the book. Uh, so you, you live for nine months out of the year in an in, in urban space. You get out on weekends, and then over the summer you're in, in this, your, your, your dream place mm-hmm. in the mountains. Is it your goal to, when you retire to, to live there or a place like it, or, or do you like going back and forth? Um. I probably won't winter up here. Um, Where I am is remote enough that I would have to snowmobile in, Um, and I don't think I'm up for that. Um, And many of my neighbors around me um, here, uh, at least on this side of the development, um, are only summer residents at all. Um, So kind of my lovely social network wouldn't be here as well. but I can envision myself living here for at least um, six, seven, maybe even eight months out of the year. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I suppose you wouldn't want to. Yeah, the dead of winter that'd be a downside right. for that for that yep. particular place. <laughs> um, and I wonder uh, about um, you, you write a lot about the relationships with your family and how those changed over over times. And, and in fact, a couple of passages you uh, make analogy between. In fact, there's one. Maybe I could have you read this. It's a. It's in the uh, chapter "All Is Forgiven at the Ceiling." Mm-hmm. Chapter 14, so it's just a page over. If you began with a poor foundation, that is a board that didn't sit level against the basement floor, it affected every other board on that wall, even though it wasn't touching it. It was almost impossible to make level that which started out so flawed. If the first board had the slightest bend or warp in it, it rippled and exacerbated in each successive board, even if it was straight, all the way to the ceiling. That's something I learned during wall number four. Although Scott taught me how to sight a board, I didn't notice the slight upward bow right in the center of the first one. For every board on top of it, I'd tap on one end to seat its groove, and the opposite end would pop out of joint. Wall number four had no windows or door to cut around, which I thought would make it fast, a fast and easy wall, but it actually made it far harder to get some wiggle room in the long boards. Finally, I cut several boards into shorter lengths, for each cut added some play. It was an amateurish solution, but I was an amateur. There was no easy solution, amateurish or otherwise, for the foundation underlying the relationship with my brother. Hmm. How did uh, building this cabin change your relationships with your father and and your brothers? Oh, goodness. Um, That's a hard one to capsulate. Um, With my older brother, Scott... um, it very much um, uh, brought us closer together. Uh, it mended some things. I think it gave us, um, on both ends, a, a better understanding of each other. Um, my brother, <clears throat> I don't want to go into um, all of that, but he had um, some experience in construction and was very much a good um, advisor um, with much of my decision-making and Uh, would kind of counsel me through some very difficult um, interactions with the company supplying things and so on and so forth. So I think uh, the fact that I was um, embarking on this, um, it really made him happy and proud to be able to help um, and to provide his um, knowledge in this um, endeavor. Um, And I totally needed his advice, and it was very um, nice. Uh, what I, I just wondered, um, your mother was gone by this time. Yes. But I wonder what she would have thought. <laughs> I have so many times wanted her to be able to see this place. Um, I can imagine, kind of like my dad, she would have worried about my embarking on doing this. Um, and, uh, yeah, just worried probably at every step of the way. But I know she would have been immensely proud and would have just totally loved um, being in this space. Mm. I think it would very, very much appeal to her. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's a, a passage from the book that, that you'd like to read. I've monopolized that part of things. Um, there's, uh, well, one part of the book that um, is very important to me is kind of the naturalizing part and the natural history part, um, that building this cabin was very much something that um, needed to be done before I could live on it. And so as the construction progressed and I was at least camping out in the um, cement basement and things like that, I was able to spend more time kind of appreciating um, the the reason, I guess, that I moved up here, um, the natural history and all the creatures around me. Um, So there's a chapter in the book called A Crush on Cranes, Um, And I thought it would be appropriate today because when I first moved to Utah, um, I think the very first fall, I went up to Logan to the Sandhill Crane Festival up there. Um, So I would imagine that many of you listeners also have a crush on cranes. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And around my cabin, um, kind of down slope in two or three directions, I have wetlands. So I often hear these cranes um, warbling. And I see them driving to Pinedale, and what had always been kind of a love of cranes 
when I moved up here, um, turned into a full-blown obsession <laughs> with cranes. So I'll just read you the last few uh, little pieces here about a chapter that explores all my little encounters with these cranes. In my sixth summer, I read a book that filled in the final missing piece of my crush on sandhill cranes. In Birds of Heaven, Peter Matheson described his pilgrimage to see the world's crane species. Of the various species of cranes worldwide, it's the sandhill crane, he noted, that shares distinctive traits with every other crane species on Earth, which strengthens its status as the ancient one. Indeed, the oldest fossil of a creature still living in its present form is that of a sandhill crane, nine million years old, found in, yes, Wyoming. Matheson wrote of watching sandhill cranes from a blind on the Platte River, saying, It moves me, for strange reasons I cannot fathom, that the elegant creature rising in companies from the bars of the Platte on this March morning is the most ancient of all birds, the oldest living species, bird species on Earth. I've long struggled to describe that something, that quality in their rattling, echoing cry, that strikes my heart like no other. Now I know. That cry conveys primordial wisdom and omniscience, a voice so full of opera that each refrain carries all the emotions and struggles and joys of crane kind. For nine millennia, sand hills have graced Wyoming skies. Their warbles have been witnessed by uplifting mountains, receding glaciers, roving Indians, and now me. This ancient voice touches something in me that I'd have to call my wild, an essence deep within that instantly reminds me that my roots are in the earth, soft mud, and wet grasses, and my soul is in the sky. Hmm. Beautiful. Uh, Julie Corbett reading from her book, uh, Seven Summers. Uh, we did have an email come in here. Um, Steve from Beaver Dam, Arizona. He says, uh, being as remote from civilization as it is, does your guest cabin have water and electrical power? <laughs> yes, it does. It does. Okay. Um, Chapter 3 is, is called Faith in the Witcher, and it's about my experience uh, with a water witcher and getting a well drilled. And I figured I needed to find that out first um, before I decided to um, build the cabin. Um, it does have electricity. Um, eventually, I do want to go to um, solar panels, um, but it does have electricity. Okay. In fact, this water witcher, it's very interesting. You t talk, I can't remember his name. Uh, Sam, I think. Uh, um, you describe the process, and, and you say that, I guess, studies have shown some people can sort of feel these electrical currents that are maybe promoted by water. Right, but who the heck knows? Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of a modern-day shaman, I guess, right. is, right. is, the, is the, the comparison you make. I wonder if you'd tell us, just, we just have a couple minutes left, uh, maybe tell us uh, the rhythm of your day when you're, mm. when, when you're at, the, at the cabin during, mm. during the summer. There's both a rhythm to the day and there's a rhythm to the whole summer. Um, and there's another chapter called What Happens at the Cabin because I often get this question, especially from folks in Salt Lake, what do you do up there? <laughs> and uh, so there's both a rhythm kind of to watching it move from May um, through October when I close um, the cabin, but also the day. Um, I love that it is dark and quiet, uh, which is something that Salt Lake is not. Um, if it's at all possible, I love to sleep with my uh, windows open. Um, if I'm lucky, I can hear great gray owls. Um, this morning at about 6.05, I think it was, I heard sandhill cranes. Um, it's usually, I'm kind of on a, a knoll here, so there's a meadow, and in the morning there really isn't any breeze at all. Um, but <clears throat> say about now, the uh, breeze has come up, and the aspen leaves are turning on their stems and making noise. Um, we still have a lot of flowers blooming up here, even though it's getting increasingly dry. Um, the insects, of course, over the season, in the course of the day, um, they're kind of bad right now. <laughs> the horse flies are out. Um, but I love hiking in the morning. Um, my dog, of course, loves it. Um, the evenings are when I often um, look for animals, um, and the dog is not allowed free outside then. I think it was two nights ago I saw a mama moose and her baby um, at the bottom of the meadow, uh, very cute and light brown. Um, uh, yeah, just it's a lovely, peaceful place. And yeah. then the sun... Um, sets over the Wyoming range, um, 
So that's spectacular as well. Yeah, that's that's it, it does sound beautiful. Yeah. And you can read uh, much more about it in uh, Julia Corbett's book, Seven Summers, A Naturalist Homesteads in the Modern West, published by University of Utah Press. Uh, Julia Corbett is a professor in the Department of Communication at University of Utah, and this is her new book, Seven Summers. And it's on our Utah Public Radio book list. You can find that at upr.org. Julia Corbett, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. For producers, uh, Shalane Smith-Needham and uh, Haley Housley, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. Just when I think I've heard it all, along comes a story concerning American women's new love affair with luxury, high-heeled, needle-nosed shoes, the kind that cost over 2,000 bucks a pair and force you to wobble down the boulevard. I remember the 80s when I worked at a fairly uptight Silicon Valley company where the dress code demanded women wear high heels. Those heels were, unlike today's crippling seven-plus inches, a mere three or four inches high, yet they still caused us female workers a good deal of angst. I'd slip mine off under my desk as soon as I could do so discreetly and then did most of my work wiggling my newly freed toes. I didn't even drive in the heels, instead wearing my Adidas in the car and only putting on the heels when I got to the parking lot. I wasn't alone. On frequent business trips, I saw many women walking the streets of Washington, D.C., Manhattan, or L.A., wearing running shoes and carrying their heels in bags, slipping into them only when they got to the lobby of their office buildings. How sensible we were in those days. Most women of my now mature age look back on our working days and shake our heads. Weren't we clever to have defied fashion when we could, eschewing hideous foot-wrenching, toe-curling, bunion-building silliness to take a stand against discomfort? Well, much to my horror, many women have now returned to wearing such foolish footwear and have done so very willingly and, I am sorry to add, very painfully. It's called Cinderella Surgery, and not the Cinderella brought to you by the Disney of our youth, which was nicely bodlerized for our young minds. No, I'm talking about the Grimm Brothers version of the Cinderella story, in which her wicked stepsisters are forced to cut off either their toes or their heels to fit into the glass slipper. Gus Gus dropped that part on my little yellow 45 record. There are now podiatry specialists who, for a hefty price, will remove a little toe or a portion of your arch or heel so you can fit into the latest Christian Louboutin to howl your way down Fifth Avenue. It nearly knocked me off my feet when I heard about this Cinderella surgery story on a recent TV show. Most of the audience, mainly women, seemed to think this was not at all an unusual step to take if it meant being able to wear the latest 8-inch, toe-pinching, alligator-leather-spiked Jimmy Choo or monoloblonic. I personally think they're all crazy, but then I've just had a knee replacement, hastened, no doubt in my mind, by the high heels I stupidly wore during half of my working life. I only wish that, like Cinderella, today's silly young women had their own fairy godmother. But instead of granting them a tall, dark, and handsome prince, I hope she'd grant them just a teensy bit of common sense. If only. This is Gina Wickwar. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.